0: I'm grateful to you, Dan, for the invitation to be here to the people of God in this congregation who are hosting our time together, providing refreshments for us, and a very warm welcome. Thank you, Kenny, and also Reed for your ministries in the Word of God. We want to continue to pray that the Holy Spirit will make this portion of Scripture that we're looking at the very food and refreshment for, for our souls, and that we'll see a living and organic connection uh, between the four uh, speakers as we all attempt to be faithful to the Word of God, inspired of the Scripture. And that, will, of course, will include our brother Tony's ministry this evening. And my text is, once again, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. I'm reading the NASB, and this text, as it is found in its context, is addressing the people of God, the Christians, the Church. But I'm going to attempt to make some applications and observations that are relevant to us as pastors as well, and hence the title of the message uh, as pilgrim pastors. As you're looking at the outline, um, those texts that have an underline on them, that's an invitation to open your Bible and look at those passages. With me, other texts that are on the outline that are there are texts to which I, w- I will refer. So again, let's pray as we open the word of God. Our Father, thank you for the grace and for the, the mercy that you've given to us, that we might know ourselves as adopted sons of God. We thank you for this wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ and for the privilege and that you have given to us to set us apart as ministers of the new covenant uh, to proclaim the glorious excellencies of Christ our Savior. We who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children how much more you, our Heavenly Father, will give us of your spirit as we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, as we look at our text uh, this morning, we must know who we are in relation to God. I say that drawing from the opening word of the text, beloved. Indicatives in the scripture are foundational and precede the imperatives. Who we are in Christ determines then how we are to live for Christ. So the word beloved is weighted at this point in Peter's epistle. It assumes that everything that Peter has talked to us about our identity in Christ comes to mind in this, in this little word, beloved. Beloved. Now, you've already heard some things about our identity in Christ both last night and again uh, this morning, and I'm compelled once again to speak of the same matter and take comfort in what Peter says in his second epistle, where he says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. So as long as we are in this present conference, to be stirred up by way of reminder as to our identity is not something that we need to apologize for because it is absolutely foundational to entering into this part of the text that then appeals us, appeals to us to take action. So we're to remember who we are. We are, in relation to God... His beloved, as we saw in chapter 1, we are the chosen, we are born again to a living hope in the resurrected Christ. We are adopted sons with an eternal inheritance. So that means the life that we live is a supernaturally endowed, empowered life that is characterized by faith. And it is a faith that, that fastens upon a living hope. And it is a faith that is motivated and demonstrates our love for Jesus Christ. We are the people of the new covenant who are described with the vocabulary and prophecies of the Old Testament. We are the children of God our Father, set apart for holiness because our Father is holy. We've been born again by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, as therefore we are children, we are nourished. By the word of God, as the people of God, we constitute God's earthly temple, which is to worship God as royal, new covenant, priestly sons of God. And we are constantly being defined with this Old Testament vocabulary so that we might understand who Christ is and the nature of our union with Christ and that understanding be informed by the entirety of our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation. So beloved is a heavy word. It identifies us uh, in keeping with the sovereign grace of God. We're sinners who are saved by Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. And that's the definition of his love for us. We hear the word love and our default is to think of an emotional disposition or an affectionate posture. But the beloved in the scripture has more to do with the nature of the life that has been given to us in God's faithfulness to his promises that we are those who are embraced in covenant love as the beloved who are alive unto God in union with Jesus Christ, who are then also to grant this God-given love to others who are beloved, as Peter has told us in 1 Peter 1.22, that we are to love the brethren. So this word love encourages us to know who we are in relation to God. Then, secondly, we must know who we are in relation to the world. And here we look at the words aliens, and strangers now again we're learning the vocabulary is often rooted in the Old Testament we have seen how Peter is writing with the pen of the New Covenant but dipping the pen into the ink of the Old Covenant and so we've had to look at what Isaiah tells us what Moses tells us in Deuteronomy what Hosea has to say to us And, and so it's not at all Shocking to us to be told that aliens and strangers ought to remind us that we are the sons of Abraham. And they are therefore to do the deeds of Abraham. I invite you to look at what the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11. Concerning this matter of our being aliens and sojourners in Hebrews chapter 11. Reading from verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called... Obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." And then drop down to verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. So here we're introduced to Abraham but we are also introduced to the descendants of Abraham. And this language, aliens and sojourners, reminds us that the sons of Abraham are on a pilgrimage. Here we are confronted with the Exodus motif and how we're to understand our salvation and who we are as the people of God, as a people who are on a journey, as a people who are, who are traversing through a foreign country. This is not our home. We are en route to our home and so as we are in this wilderness journey we are aliens in relation to the world in which we presently live an alien of course is one who lives in a country but is there as a foreigner without full citizenship and therefore denied certain status and privilege in that milieu i was saying to some of the brethren my parents immigrated from ireland and I was born in Canada. And all of my youth, I was very much aware that my parents were aliens and strangers. Maybe a wee bit more strange than, than aliens, but they talked with a funny accent. Uh, they had certain customs and, and diet preferences that were foreign. Uh, they befriended others who also talked with funny accents. (laughs) Uh, I wasn't naturalized as a U.S. citizen until I was 16. Uh, And that was because my father was told that if I went to college and wasn't an American citizen, he'd have to pay more more money for my tuition. And uh, I grew up constantly listening to the dinner conversation that surrounded the question of whether or not we're going to move back to Ireland. I was very much aware that I was a foreigner and that that my parents were foreigners. The Old Testament term alien, of course, speaks to those who were outside of the theocratic Old Covenant, Israel, who were brought into that culture, many of whom were motivated, like Ruth, for a desire to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And, of course, that's the name that is given to the people of of the people of God. And as such, the aliens were to be incorporated into the privileges and into the blessings of having citizenship in that theocratic system of old-covenant Israel. So too, in the New Testament, we, the church, we are described in this language to understand that we are the eschatological last days, the people who are the people of God. We once were not a people, now we are the people, In fact, the ethnicities and the geographic and all of the things that distinguish men are no longer germane to the identity that we have as God's Israel, as the people of God. And that makes us to be aliens in relation to this world, in relation to this age, indeed, in relation to every political system under which Christians have been called to live. Because our citizenship as we're told in Philippians 2:20 320 is in heaven ours is a monarchy we live under the government of king Jesus whether we live under a tribal system whether we live under a communist socialist system whether we live under a democratic republic regardless of the political system in which the church is found she is a citizen of heaven and she is submitted to the throne of King Jesus. So we're aliens, and we're strangers. And of course, that word also means sojourners. This is a, we are pilgrims in exile. So we have that exodus motif. We also have the, 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 the return from the exile that we heard uh, from, from Kenny in regard to understanding how Isaiah speaks to those in exile its second exodus motif that now describes our salvation so that we are traveling to an ultimate destination we are in a wilderness journey as aliens and sojourners now what characterized the people of God while they were in the wilderness I submit to you worship characterized them they were granted the privilege of the God who visited them at Sinai and who made covenant with them, then took residence in the tabernacle. And he then moved with them in their pilgrimage until he took residence in the temple that was then, you remember, built in Jerusalem. The thing that characterized this people was the God they worshipped dwelt with them. And it was evident because there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day that testified to the fact that this is the people among whom the living God dwells. The other thing that characterized them was warfare, that they were a people who were being formed into an army and being trained to do battle and to conquer under the leadership of the Lord, who was indeed their king. Note the language of warfare and conflict comes up in our text when we're told that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls. These are people who were to maintain the worship of God. They were a people who were brought into warfare for God, and they were to be a people who didn't turn and go back. They had to persevere. They had to continue to follow God by faith, relying upon the provisions that God gave to them in the manna and the water and Moses' leadership that by which they were taught the word of God from the God who was present with them. They were to be persevering ever with hope. They had the promised land that was in front of them that type and picture of that Sabbath rest that God put before man even at the very dawn of creation. And they were to be motivated by love. They were indeed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, their soul, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. That was part of the covenant calling. And that love would be manifest as they learned how to be obedient to the law of God. And so these things that we draw from the Old Testament also inform us in our understanding when Peter looks at us and says, you're a gathering, you are a group of aliens and of sojourners. And that informs us, brethren, that it is the presence of God with us that that defines our identity. It's, It's God present with us. If you... If if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, looking at at verse 6 and following, regarding the issues of living as the people of God, God is teaching them his judgments, his, his commands. He says, so keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? What great nation has Yahweh as God and as this God who lives and dwells in the midst of his people to guide them and to direct them with these commands that are to their blessing and to their wisdom, such that the nations round about ought to be stimulated to some godly jealousy, if you will, as to how the order and the blessing and the vitality of this people reflects the presence of the living God who dwells among them. And of course, that. That presence was, was the provision of the grace that was given in the cultists through the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifice and the ceremonial Sabbaths and the prophetic words that were the living words communicated to the people of God. So how was Old Covenant Israel's national identity defined? Well, they're the people of the Lord. And how was their national identity evidenced? By their worship, by their worship, a worship that then issued into a life, a life that was lived by faith and hope and love, seeking to bring praise and honor to the name, to the name of the God who is their God. So Peter defines the church in similar ways when he tells us in verse 9, as we've seen already, you are a holy nation. You are a holy nation. That is your definition. Holy, because God dwells in your midst. That's your national identity, because you are a people, or a priesthood, whose identity defines your activity. Priests worship. Priests serve the living God. It's significance, therefore. It's significant that... That earlier in verse five, Peter defines us precisely in these terms: that we are living stones who constitute a earth, earthly temple, in which the activities conducted in that temple actually transpire in the very in the very halls of heaven, in the very heavenly temple, and that we perform the responsibilities and service of new covenant priests, offering new covenant sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving that is our national identity that is who we are as aliens and sojourners in relation to this world so this is a question as we have been introduced already in in our time together last night and this morning it's the question of interpreting the scriptures the the hermeneutic what is the relationship between the old testament and the new testament what, what hermeneutical method is Peter using to write with New Testament pen and dip his pen into Old Testament ink? How is, he, how is it legitimate for him uh, to define the church with the vocabulary that originally is descriptive of Israel? Particularly those, those descriptions here in, in verse 9. How does the new covenant people of God have an identity that is in continuity with the old covenant people of God, and yet they're not the old covenant people of God. There's a discontinuity that is determined by who we are in relation to King, to King Jesus. Not only does this issue, brethren, and I speak to pastors, not only does this issue have to deal with uh, in, in giving our people an understanding of who they are as the new covenant nation of, of, of God, But as aliens and sojourners, what is our relationship to the nation through which we are sojourning? The national context in which we are traveling. In other words, what's the church's relationship to the state? If we're aliens and sojourners in relation to the world, and if we have a national identity that is defined by God's presence among us, then what does that mean for us in relation uh, to the state. Now, of course, this is a complex and much heated, uh, sometimes heated, debated issue. But brethren, as pastors and as ministers who are guiding a people through this wilderness, we've got to come to some subtle conviction as to the relationship of the church and state. And we have to minister to the people of God with an awareness that we will give an account to our king for how we have fed and how we have led the people of God through this wilderness journey. How is the church to be salt and to be light in the context of this wilderness, in the context of whatever political climate the church finds herself in? Is the church's role as church different from the options that are available to Mr. and Mrs. Christian, who are sitting sitting in the pew. Are our convictions in this matter biblically consistent as the church in the United States, such that we could preach the same things from the pulpit to the church in Pakistan, living under an Islamic context? Can we tell the brethren in Islamabad that they are aliens and sojourners and speak to them to their identity in Christ with the same message and emphasis that we would speak to Christians in America? Could we do the same thing in Beijing if we were given the opportunity to speak to Christians in China who are living under a communist regime? Could we say to them that they, as we, are aliens and sojourners, how to relate to the state. Ours is a very unusual political experiment here in the United States. And our sense of being aliens and sojourners isn't as acute as what it is for our brothers and sisters under an Islamic country or under a communist country or under tribalism as those who are coming to Christ in, in Africa. But if we're going to be ministers of the gospel, and if we're going to speak to the people of God, whether they be in Bithynia or whether they be in in Zambia, we're going to have to be able to say the same thing to them for which we will give an account to King Jesus for what we say to his subjects, to his citizens, to those who are under the rule of his monarchy. Now, I'm no expert in this. Um, In fact, even coming here yesterday, I was listening to a podcast uh, of being with this whole issue of uh, the pastor's relationship to the state authorities and so forth was being, was being discussed. Uh, but brethren, I would invite you and, and, and challenge myself to give prayerful thought to these issues, uh, to read on these matters, uh, particularly, particularly because of the providential overlap that is in the minds of so many people that we live in a Christian nation. And that somehow, American Christianity, uh, does that sound oxymoronic to you? It should, all right? We are aliens and sojourners. Uh, How does that manifest itself when we live under a political experiment in which citizens of our country have been given such unusual privileges, rights, and opportunities? How do we navigate? Well, our text tells us that we're aliens and sojourners in this present age. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are subjects of the king, of kings and the Lord of lords, and our nationality is defined by our union with this risen Christ. We are his subjects, and as his subjects, we are also part of his family. We are fellow heirs. So our nationality is demonstrated in our worship, and our worship informs the life of faith that we live, because it's our worship, it's the presence of God with us, and our fellowship with him that determines the course that we take through this wilderness as we are heading together to the promised land of God's promised Sabbath rest. And of course, Hebrews 3 and 4 gives a a greater uh, detail as to the motif of the wilderness for the new covenant people of God. So we must know who we are in relation to God. We must know who we are in relation to the world. And we must know who we are in relation to ourselves. And here we come to that little word, you. Now, that that word is is, is not in the the Greek text explicitly, but it's bound up, uh, in the, the plural nouns and the plural verbs. Beloved, aliens, strangers, abstain. Those are all plural nouns and verbs. So the Christian is told right out of the gate that, that he, she is to cultivate a communal mentality, to have a corporate identity. And of course we can readily think of the metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, that we are the body of Christ, and, and, and the hand uh, has need of the foot and of the eye and the ear and, and so forth. And after Paul describes that, that body metaphor, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 12:27, now you, plural, are Christ's body, but individually members of it. So our individuality comes into view in this text. We have a plural identity. We are part of a nation. We are part of a people. We have a community, corporate identity. But we are individually being addressed, particularly in our text, because we're concerned with the status of our souls. And that's a very personal and private thing. And that, of course, has real significance for us as as pastors. And this whole matter of, of of whether we're to define ourselves corporately or individually, uh, political systems teeter back and forth. Emphasis in the Scripture teeters back and forth. It can be a challenge. I've heard in the western part of the country where everybody's out there because they're striving after rugged individualism. And uh, you, know, you know, but now we're seeing that. The pendulum swim to swing toward the place where where our young people in our generation don't have individual identity as much as part of the group. They're all being they're all being organized and submerged under under issues of race and gender and and class issues, and and the group identity now has become so prominent. The Bible would have us understand that our true individuality can only be found as we take our place in the corporate community of the church. Our true individuality can only be found when we are relating one to another as joints and ligaments in the body, contributing nourishment and benefit to others and likewise receiving benefit and nourishment from others. It's a a wonderful study to to look at, I think some 32 times that that you find in the New Testament this idea of one-anothering, one-anothering. That we are to be vitally, livingly connected in the plural community, but individually part of that body. Now, if all the nouns and the verbs are plural, where's the individual? I've already referenced it in our concern this morning. Where's the pastor? Well, the individual right there in the word soul. We hear Peter's appeal as members of of God's chosen race, royal priests, holy nation, a people for God's possession, with corporate responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But we receive and respond to Peter's appeals individually. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we are responsible for our personal stewardship of the hearing and the doing of the word of God. So who then is the individual Christian? Who then is the individual pastor who comes to view in verse 11? As we've learned, this is the one who is alive by the spirit through the covenant love of God in Christ. He bears the name of King Jesus in communion with the people of God. And together, he is traveling with this community through the wilderness of this age to the promised Sabbath rest of resurrection glory. And he is upholding the worship of God. He is engaging in warfare because he is part of an army that is to witness, that is to overcome, That is to be a soldier in service of King Jesus. So knowing our identity of who we are in relation to God, who we are in relation to the world, who we are in relation to self, I am responsible to live my Christian life. I can't live yours. I'm responsible to exercise the stewardship of my pastoral ministry. I can't exercise your stewardship. We are all going to stand before Christ and to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or whether evil. And we must take stock of who we are as individuals who are members of the body of Christ and take responsibility for the well-being of the community. That brings us then to these imperatives. Now, where Peter has, has, has underscored the indicatives of our identity and who we are, now we turn fourthly. We must respond to Peter's appeal. And here I underline the words, I urge you. I. Who is this? Well, chapter 1, verse 1. This is an apostle. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, he is one who writes the very commands of God. This is one who communicates with supreme authority. This is the one who speaks on behalf of him who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who is confessed to be Lord of lords and king of kings. But yet he says, I urge you, I appeal to you. I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with the word that, that Peter uses here, parakalao, which means para and kaleo, to come alongside in order to call to someone. And of course, this word has a whole spectrum of meaning to it, depending upon context and and the one to whom the call is coming and the purpose for which the call is being given. So this word can be translated as an exhortation or an admonition. It can be translated as an appeal, as one who is begging and entreating it can be translated uh, as one who has come alongside to console and, and to comfort. There, there's, there's an element of authority in Paral There's this is, this is not just, this is not just a, 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 a voice among many voices. This is more akin to a summons. This is the idea of being exhorted by one who has some degree of authority, some degree of accountability to Christ, for how you're being exhorted, but also in that accountability has a responsibility to exhort you for your ultimate good and for your ultimate benefit. So you picture, for example, the football coach, right? We're we're now in, in football season. And so you see the team is on the 10 yard line and right next to the 10 yard line, there's the football coach. And he, although he's got the mic on, he's yelling and he's, he's you know, he's communicating to everybody on the field. A complete pass is made, and now the team is going to move up to the 17-yard line. Where's the coach? He moves up to the 17-yard line. So He is walking parallel with them, and he's continuing to call out to them. He is, as it were, urging them. You know that the noun form, paraclete, is what Jesus would describe of himself in his earthly ministry, alongside of and exhorting and teaching his disciples. Now that is the ministry that Jesus gives to us by his Holy Spirit, who is the paraclete. He is right alongside of us, and he is calling to us. And this is Christ in Peter's letter saying, in effect, I'm calling to you. I'm urging you. I'm appealing to you because of who you are, because you are this wonderful new covenant people of God who is alive with the ears to hear the voice, for my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So we respond to this appeal. We must respond to this appeal. Fifthly, we must therefore resist attacks against our souls. And here's the main imperative, right? Abstain from fleshly lusts that which wage war against the soul. Now this is nothing other than a reiteration of Discipleship 101. This is... Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me, says Jesus, as he is en route to Jerusalem to be crucified. Now the word fleshly denotes the fallen condition of our bodies, in particular the body of this death, this life of the Christian in which we are alive with the spirit and yet contend with remaining sin. Lusts, of course, speak to that aspect of of remaining sin. It has to do with the morality of the 10th commandment. It has to do with, with the desires, the affections, the appetites, the the goals to which a man is oriented. And so we're we're trafficking in the morality of the Tenth Commandment. And the commandments are, are best arranged not so much in a, a vertical line, but in a circle, because the Tenth Commandment immediately connects to the First Commandment, because the, the heart desire is indeed the God that you are serving, the, the one that you are, are desiring. So we are not to allow fleshly lusts to occupy an idolatrous place, in our hearts now peter 's concern throughout his letter is to make stark contrast between the lifestyle of the Christian distinct from the lifestyle of the pagans round about him and we We, we heard something of uh, of of the historical description of the christian 's life in northern Turkey from our brother Reed this morning and and how similar it is to the challenges that we face, that we are to be a distinct and a peculiar people, a people for God's own possession. If you look at 1 Peter 1, this is brought out where Peter tells us in verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what is brought to our attention here in verse 12 of chapter 2. In chapter 3 and verse 13 and following, Peter again is making this stark contrast between the believers and those who they would be intimidated by, those who are opposing them, in some way, because of their pursuit of of Christ. And then again in chapter 4, where we read in verses 1 to 5, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have, been, to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and, abomin- and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that, they, that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here Peter makes it clear. There's, there's an orientation to the life that you're living now in the body. And one is described as the loss of the flesh, the fallen appetites and desires. The other is the will of God. And this is in direct contrast to the lifestyle and to the appetites and to the, and to the way in which life is lived by those who are outside of Christ. And so we're called to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. This is discipleship. We are called to deny ourselves, to deny those things that might otherwise gratify us if all we're living for is the things of this age. If all we're living for is is the gratification of our own sensual appetites, we are to strive for eternal blessedness and to live... For the promises of the age to come, already tasting that as we've been granted the down payment of the Spirit. Now we are especially in this matter to be warned as pastors because in chapter 5, verse 3, we're told that we are examples uh, to the people of God. And so there are peculiar lusts of the flesh that ought to uh, frighten us as, as men of God. And you're familiar with them. You know as well as I do the tragic stories of men in the ministry. It, doesn't, it, seems, it, it seems like every, I don't know, three to five years or so, you get news. There's another one. Sometimes I feel like, like those troops marching up on Normandy Beach. You ever seen pictures of that? And they're just taking their place, and they're are charging forward, boom, he falls down, boom, he falls down. And you, you have to walk, and you have to press on. And we have to be warned against the sins that, that so easily entangle us. Sexual sins. Pornography, indulgence in, in, in indulging in un, unmortified sexual lust. Alcohol and drugs. On the one hand, excessive exercising, the endomorphs of exercising become something that is very appealing. On the other hand, the sins of gluttony. Pastors, I've often found, can can be rather slothful and undisciplined in their use of time. On the other hand, they can be workaholics and all they do is work. If you're like me, I have my, my study in my home and I'm, I'm not too far from you need to write an email. You, know, you need to read it in this way. It's hard sometimes to step away from the work. That's you know, one of the issues. Maybe your wife isn't like mine. Um, you know, when are, well, when are you finished with your work? <laughs> when are you available then? You know, and I well, as soon as I'm finished with this. Well, will it be at five? Will it be at five thirty? Oh, I have to. As soon as I'm finished with this, I'm not sure how long it's going to take. There's this creative dimension. I'm going to mention some of that in a little bit. So the use of our time, how we spend our money. Uh, I, I can remember having bought a used vehicle, and, and one of the brethren in the church making comment to me about that. And I was like, "Wow, you 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 paid note to the fact that I didn't buy a new vehicle. I bought a used vehicle, and somehow that testified something." Of a stewardship of finances, how you manage your possessions, everything about you uh, sometimes it 's a wonderful privilege and sometimes it 's a real burden to bear isn't it? You never take your pastor 's hat off she 's the only well no there 's two wives here even when in, even as a husband, it seems like you never sometimes you never take your pastor 's hat off and you're, you are you are this is your identity this is who you are, and when you come to this word sensuality, uh, I mean, you know, you, you, the whole menu just drops down on your computer screen as to the various kinds of sins that fall under that heading. These these sins of, that are sensual in their nature they war against the soul, against the suke. Of course, we get the word psychology from that, and and again, the word suke, the soul. It, 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 it has some spectrum of meaning in terms of its context. It can it can be described as one's entire life. That's how that's how the people who died on the Titanic were call. We lost these many souls today. I meant not just the immaterial part, but their their entire life. But it can speak to that immaterial dimension of our of our, our, our soul body humanity, though inner faculties of mind and. And, and heart, and, and will, and emotions. But brethren, let me particularly underscore the importance of your conscience. I know there's an awful lot that we read about that, that has to do with the thought life, and the, the, the will, the volition, and the emotions. But, but I would submit to you that even foundational to those inner faculties is your conscience. Your conscience. And there is a peculiar relationship between your conscience and how you think, and how you reason. And this, of course, is a peculiar and special concern to us as pastors. We are to mortify fleshly lusts because they wage war against the soul. They wage war against the inner faculties and the inner workings of our, of our hearts. This word wage war Stata, ooh, oh my we get the word strategize from that. We're wrestling with powers and principalities, with spiritual forces of wickedness. And no small part of Satan's strategy is to get pastors off the track by enticing them to invest their time, their efforts, their labors for that which is not ultimate to the service of Christ. To live, to gratify fleshly, Lust. Now, I know you're all familiar with the categories of, of the love of the world that, that John speaks to us in First John chapter 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, there it is, and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Of course, the lust of the flesh. There, we're, we're there in that sensual indulgence of which Peter says, "You're not to go into that party lifestyle that that was so that is so characteristic of the Gentiles." And they're astonished that you're not coming along and so forth. There's the lust of the eyes, and of course, that's the thing to which the heart is drawn. Where the eyes of your heart are drawn out, it's the the sin of covetousness, the sin of envy. And we as pastors need to take peculiar attention to that. We are susceptible to being envious of how Christ is using another servant. And we think, well, what about, what about me? And we get discontent and get resentful and resistant to assuming the post that King Jesus has assigned to us, and to be faithful in that place of appointment. One of our great liabilities in the ministry that I've observed in myself, and perhaps you can identify with that, is is self-pity. No one knows the weight of these words like I do. No one understands the stewardship for eternal souls uh, to whom I'm speaking i i, I can 't watch a news broadcast without feeling the impact of the warfare of the powers and principalities and this is a, this is a burden and we can and, and 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 we can collapse under the weight of that and start feeling sorry for ourselves right and, and i 've heard the i 'm sure you've you know you've you 've heard the, i think many of us are frustrated stand up comics but uh, I, I've heard the joke about what happens when you get a group of pastors in the basement. What's that called? It's called a wine cellar, right? W i h i n e. You know, it, 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 it's a it's it's a burdensome stewardship, and then there's this matter of the boastful pride of life, and I think that's another temptation. And It's a flip side to self-pity. It's a it's a solipsistic narcissism to which we're vulnerable because we feel such isolation in the nature of the work that we're called to. After all, don't you know, I know, I, I don't have the same sort of rapport and engagement with somebody who does not have some sort of experience in the pastoral ministry, right? It, 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 who do I get that kind of rapport with? Someone who at least identifies with the unusual character of this work. And then, of course, I, I've got to sift around a little bit more to find out a little bit more about the pastoral Fellowship, I'm. You know, it's like you know, watching two dogs meet one another. They're both sniffing around one another, and you know, getting a sense of of uh, of where we are relative to what is our doctrinal pedigree, uh, what is the nature of our ministry of stewardships, and you know, what kind of things have have we done, and and all of these things are 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 relevant. All of these things are part of us as the work that we do but all of these things that can become vulnerable to us because we, we're vulnerable at the point of trying to get some measurement as to how we're doing in this very unusual kind of work. I can remember cutting my grass and standing back at the end of cutting my grass and looking at the rows of the lawnmower gone over and saying, I did that. I had an effect. All of the work caused an effect. And then you get this irrational compulsion to go out and carve your initials into the side of a tree because you you have some sense that you want your work to have some impact. And we often do not experience those kind of metrics in the pastoral ministry. You get done with a, a sermon series that's, that, that, that you've invested hundreds of hours in. It's taken you dozens of sermons to preach. You get finished with it. That was interesting, Pastor. And the next thing up is what's coming on Sunday. What's coming on Sunday? And you don't you don't have that sense. And as Baptists we're even in a in a in a more vulnerable situation because we don't have this sort of like, okay, be faithful here in the little country church and then you go to the suburb and then we don't have that, that, that structure, many of us, in which there's a sense, well, I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to get some sort of advance. It's hard to get a metric on our success. We have to keep our eyes upon Christ. We have to know that the success of the ministry is found in being faithful and be warned against the matters of pride. If we take the world's measure, how many people in your church what seminary did you go to? Ever preach at a conference? Have an international ministry? We're trying to get these... You see what I'm saying? Brethren, we're not in competition with each other. And, and, and we're not religious entrepreneurs. And, and we're, not, we're not all in competition for a market. Don't let that mentality come in to your thinking. It will make you vulnerable to pride, right? I mean, even Paul said he had to learn how to contend with the thorn in the flesh. Why? So as to keep him from being proud because of the revelations that that God had given to him. How do these things, this love of the world, relate to the pastoral ministry? What was Demas' problem? Remember? Demas has left me. Why? Because he had a love of this world, a love of this age. A love of this age. Then there's where we can be we can become tempted and, and, and vulnerable because we we live in a Corinthian culture. We live in a Corinthian culture and the Corinth the Corinthians made a, a a they they were experts at self promotion. They were experts at boasting. And so Paul uses the word boasting repeatedly in his letter to the Corinthians because he turns them on their head. And so he's going to brag about himself, and he's going to tell them all the times he was beaten, all the times he was starved, and all the times he was humiliated. And you can just see the Corinthians kind of going, "Mm, they're cringing. Because this is not the kind of boasting that they are oriented to. But we can call prey to that if we lose our identities, aliens and sojourners, and begin to measure ourselves and to begin to identify ourselves by the metrics of American success. Albert Barnes comments on lusts of the flesh that war against the soul. They blunt the moral sense, they pollute the memory, they defile the imagination. They harden the heart and send a withering influence through all the faculties of the soul. Indulgence in these lusts make war against the noble faculties of the soul. The conscience, the understanding, the memory, the judgment. And he speaks of an exercise of pure imagination. That's one of the reasons it's hard for me to tell my wife I'm going to be done at 430. Because there's a creative dimension to writing messages in the, in the ministry. And you you. You, you have to exercise some dimension of a pure imagination. The lusts of the flesh attack the faculties of the soul. And it's the faculties of the soul that we exercise in pastoral ministry. So as to be able to think and as to be able to, to have some some creative uh, uh, usefulness in how we construct our sermons and how we minister to others. Haven't you been next to the bedside of someone and find yourself saying, "Lord, give me a text, give me," and, and, you, and there's a sense in which I have to. How can I exercise a, a pure imagination combined with the scriptures that I can meet the needs of this individual and help them in their setting? Pure imagination—it struck my—it struck my attention. I, I think, in some ways, the things that we imagine, the things to which we aspire, the things for which we're hoping, uh, can have even more impact upon us than than logic and rationality. And it's, it's it's that that we need in the writing and preaching of sermons. Paul talks not only about the lust of the Peter about the lust of the flesh, but Paul mentions in Ephesians two and verse three uh, that that there's also the lust of the mind the desires of the flesh, and of the mind. and Brethren, it's imperative for us to understand that our moral integrity, the guarding of our heart, the maintenance of a good conscience before God and men has an integral effect upon our ability to think. Because we are not going to allow ourselves to think about something that our conscience is accusing us on, or our conscience is rejecting. We are not going to operate in our soul business properly without maintaining a good conscience. There's a relationship between the intellect and the matter of wisdom. It's better to be wise than to be smart. It's better to be wise than to be clever. There's a relationship between your moral character and the mental spiritual work of the ministry. The impact of sexual sin that is so prevalent in our day and that is so accessible on the internet and which we are, to which we are so vulnerable because we often do our work by ourselves. And we need to understand that there is this connection, not only with God's judgment upon the world in Romans 1, but there is this connection that sexual sin ultimately leads to a depravity of mind. And in order to justify sexual sin, the mind will rearrange its understanding of God and reality itself and live in a fantasy world. I know it's almost 12. I appreciate that. So we are to abstain. We are to deny ourselves. We are to seek the fruit of the Spirit, the dimension of which is self-control. Abstain. That means, like Joseph, drop your coat and run. Like the young child is the young man is told in Proverbs five, don't even walk down the road where the house of the harlot is. Don't even pass by there. Stay clear, because sin will insinuate itself into your soul. It'll fester there, it'll harden you, it'll blind you, it'll deceive you. It's warring against you. Because, brethren, Satan wants you to apostatize. He wants you to be one of those statistics that you hear every three or four or five years. Did you hear about Brother so-and-so? Really? Him? He wants you to break your wife's heart. He wants you to break the hearts of your kids. He wants to scatter the sheep in your congregation. He wants you to dishearten fellow soldiers... Christ, understand this war and it's a war that we fight at the level of our own souls take heed to your heart for from it are the issues of life and the issues of your ministry abstain and you know that that's putting off right but there's also a putting on and it's the principle of displacement let me submit to you in areas where I have sent some conscience, conscientious sense of making some progress in personal sanctification, it's been through this principle of displacement. If I fill my life up with the things that are positive in my obedience to Christ, I don't have the time nor the energy, and eventually I lose the interest in the things that are being pushed out, and I can put them off because I'm putting on Jesus Christ. I'm being told in a number of... Distance, well, going, this, <laughs> the ceiling is about to collapse. We need to conclude. We're going to look at the displacement of an excellent behavior in the next verse. As we pursue the excellent behavior, we'll mortify and put away the deeds of the flesh. My encouragement, as I conclude, is simply to urge us to cultivate an eschatological view... Keep your hope completely on the return of Christ. One of Satan's devices is to get you you caught up with a truncated eschatology and your hopes and your aspirations all fall short of the ultimate hope to which we're called, which is the return of our King. Keep your hope focused on him and remember who you are in the words of chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfailing crown Amen.